Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Kaboom. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I'm a uh, charming lad, hmm. man about town. Ladies man, man's man, man about town. All of those things. Uh, and uh, with me, as always, is my charming, scintillating, staggeringly intelligent co-host. Introduce yourself, Mr. William Bibiani. Oh, it's me! Yeah. Oh, I, was always, I always wonder. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, Whitney lied to me. He told me he was going to do a funny voice at the start of this podcast. No, I decided against it at the last minute. No, it's his prerogative. I just wanted you to know. If, if you're wondering why I'm like kind of off kilter, it's that we didn't really rehearse for this. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm not on my feet. <laughs> really? You might be thinking to yourself, you guys don't rehearse, but you, <laughs> your show seems so polished. <laughs> And well structured. <laughs> anyway, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we were reviewing the new releases Bill and Ted Face the Music, The Personal History of David Copperfield, and Rogue, the movie where Megan Fox fights a man eating lion, uh, and uh, which nobody's talking about. How is no one talking about this? Uh, new Mutants also came out this last week, but we were not able to see it, so. That's how that goes. Yeah, um, we couldn't get to a drive-in, and uh, was, there weren't any screenings or screeners, and uh, that was that. We couldn't do it. Sorry, I want to see it too. This is uh, this is the future of one company controlling everything. Yeah, they're just going to meet out whatever they can. Well, you know what? We're not going to review your movie. Well, do you remember at some when? Point, uh, it'll be on home video eventually. Yeah, I might, might watch it. Do you remember when uh, Disney tried to prevent critics from seeing Thor Ragnarok? Was it? There wasn't was, it just like the? No, oh, it was just well, the LA Times. It was the LA Times because what, they what had, had this big was, expose uh, yeah. about how they were treating Orange County or something. It, it was the city of Anaheim, ah. uh, where where Disneyland is located. Uh, yeah, there was this big scandal, whereas where in the LA Times revealed how much money Disney was sort of bleeding out of the city, mm. and how the city should be grateful to have so many tourism dollars, but Disney was not putting any of the money back into the city. Yeah, and uh, the parking lot was paid for by the city, and Disney never paid it back. They keep all of the revenue from the parking, even yeah. though they're supposed to go back to the city. Pe- people was, aren't uh, going to Disneyland and then like eating elsewhere. They're going to Disneyland. Yeah, and then they yeah. leave Disneyland and go home. Yeah, they're not. So, they're not enjoying all the other scenic aspects they, of Anaheim. They broke a lot of contracts and there was a lot of yeah, scandal as to yeah. like how much land they were taking. The biggest was taking the from time. the city. It yeah, it was swept under the rug. People just forgot about kind it. Kind of a big deal. And, uh, and Disney got so mad. They said, you know what? LA Times, you can't review our latest movie, which at the time was Thor Ragnarok. Ah, yes. And, uh, and immediately all the other critics and all the other outlets just said, well, fine, if the LA Times can't review it, we won't either. In fact, if we can't review it, Thor Ragnarok is now out of the running for all of the awards at the end of the year. Our critics won't be able to mention it. It's not going to be on any best of lists. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be completely because you're not letting us see it. Yeah. So we're not going to be able to review it. And that that way we can't put it up for awards. Yeah. And Disney changed their tune pretty quick. And they said, oh, okay, fine. You can come to our press screenings. Now, here's the thing. A lot of movies don't screen for critics or critics can't always make every screening. Sometimes it's just scheduling. Mm. Even even in a normal year. Yeah. There's just too many screenings. There's too many movies. People get assigned different things. It's hard to see everything. And uh, sometimes you have to see movies on your own. And I'm normally very, very happy to do that. Problem is, there's a fucking pandemic. And the only option I have to see the movie in a way that I deem safe is at a drive-in, which is in a good, like, like on a typical night, even without a lot of traffic, is mm-hmm. about an hour-long drive. 
Yeah, it's pretty far from our current location. That's not the most horrible thing in the world, but I simply don't have the time. I also don't have the money. And that's that. So I can't review New Mutants. I would love to review New Mutants. Eventually I will see it, Mm. and I'll probably share my thoughts at some point. But for now, there's lots of other movies to review. We're going to be reviewing those instead. Um, Before we get to any of our reviews, Mm. we have to talk about something that really sucks and absolutely blindsided almost everybody and not a lot of people people knew surprise yeah uh really suddenly this last week chadwick boseman the star of black panther star of get on up star of 42 star of marshall uh passed away the age Mm. of 43 he had been uh battling colon cancer uh outside of the public eye for about four years which means that a lot of the movies that he made, and he will probably go down for an incredibly long, hopefully forever, because he's a really brilliant actor. Mm. But a lot of his most incredible movies and performances, uh, he was battling colon cancer the whole time. And yeah. it's really amazing that not only was he able to accomplish so much while he was going through so much, but in the process, he was giving one incredible performance after another. Just absolutely yeah. staggeringly good actor. And I firmly believe, that I, and I would have said this a week and a half ago, like before anyone knew, that the only reason he never got an Oscar for something like 42 or Get On Up is because everyone's like, he's young, he will get one. Mm. He's clearly one of the most talented actors of his generation. He's incredibly versatile. He's incredibly charming and charismatic. He's funny. Mm-hmm. He's insightful. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's very, very nice. I, I read a rather uh, chilling interview with him after his passing mm-hmm. where uh, someone was asking about just sort of the, the physical demands of being in a superhero movie. Yeah. Because the actors have to work out a lot. They have to be in superhero shape to, sh- to appear in these films. So he had to work out a lot. And uh, in between making two of the Avengers films that he was in, uh, he starred in Marshall. Replay Thurgood yeah. Marshall and yeah. uh, great performance in an okay movie. If you've ever, if you yeah. haven't seen it, it's good, not amazing. It's not like Forty Two good or Get On Up good, but he's amazing in it. But the the interviewer said that must be very physically trying to you know bulk up and then slim down and yeah. then bulk up again. And his response was, "Someday I'll tell you how hard that was." Oh. And, uh, <laughs> it's like he because he he didn't want it known. Yeah. He didn't want no, it known. Then, uh, it was totally yeah. his right. Like absolutely. But like mm. it just took everyone by. Like, you you texted me. I hadn't heard. Mm. I took social media off my phone like earlier this summer. I just it was giving me too much anxiety. Yeah. Well, so wise move. So like I, I still I'm on my laptop a lot. So mm. like I have access to it. But when I'm out and about or which isn't very much anymore. But you know if I'm doing errands, I I don't have access to the news or at least I'm not getting notifications about it and you texted me and I'm like what? Yeah, like it's it's kind of a surprise. And it's such an unthinkable tragedy. It Mm. is such an unthinkable tragedy. It is something that, by the way, colon cancer runs in my family so it's triggered a lot of anxiety about it. Um, If you haven't, if you're over the age of 35 and you haven't had a colonoscopy, I highly recommend that you get one. Uh, I believe under many insurance companies, it is considered preventative care. And as a result, you shouldn't have to pay much or anything for it. Um, And uh, it is also, if you catch it early enough, uh, very, very preventable. So Mm. like you can, it doesn't have to be a death sentence. It's a tragedy when it is. And it is absolutely 
um, just mind-boggling that one of these incredible talents, one of the people I think anyone could look at Chadwick Boseman and go, mm. wow, what an actor. It's not with us anymore. Did yeah. you have a favorite Chadwick Boseman performance? Well, Get I mean, On Get on Up is my favorite performance. I haven't seen Marshall, so mm. I, 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 in a weird way, I feel fortunate that I have a, a performance of his that I can catch up on. Oh, yeah. I can uh, yeah. see more original Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Uh, Get on up is amazing. It, it, got, it got overlooked, and that's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. That movie's—I think it might be his best film, other than Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther and Get on Up are his two best movies for sure. Uh, Get on up, he plays James Brown, and uh, he, in, in all of uh, all of his strange uh, strange proclivities and weird behavior late in his life, as well yeah. as the struggles he had as a young man. Uh, the opening scene is really great, where he breaks into—is uh, it a church meeting? It's like a- Bank or something. Something like, was like, this, like a... something in a strip mall, and James Brown broke in to complain about the noise and just cuss everyone out. Yeah. And in the middle of it, he kind of spaces out and just hears James Brown music, and then he floats back and starts yelling at them again. It's like this weird stream of consciousness movie yeah. where it's like it's like if you were at a bar. Hanging out with James Brown. James Brown is drunk and just rattling off one anecdote after mm. another. Doesn't matter if they're in chronological order or not. Uh, yeah, kind of flow into each other a little bit. And he's being brutally honest. That's one of the great things about Get On Up is that it is not, you know, a rose-colored glasses kind of thing. It shows a lot of the ugliness. It shows him not being a very good person sometimes. Yeah. Chadwick Boseman's performance in that movie is incredibly transformative. Like, he's absolutely incredible. That's one of those uh, uh, people... Whose you know whose physicality and whose voice was so distinct, it would be very easy for someone to dip into uh, just mimicry, and mm. I don't think Chadwick Boseman did that for a second. Yeah. He's very very excellent, um, and, um, he, and he wasn't all in good movies. He was in Gods of Egypt, <laughs> but he was having but fun was, in Gods in, of Egypt. And, and in fact, there's like hundreds of him in, in <laughs> Gods of a Egypt. Weird band. He plays th- uh, Thoth, Toth, however you pr- I, I think think it's, you I think it's Toth, it. but uh, yeah, he plays the the, the 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 god of like wisdom or intelligence, mm. and so, um, so he lives in a library and he's constantly studying. But in order to absorb more knowledge, he's made like a hundred clones of himself, like magical clones that yeah. are all just sort of running around, and they're all his assistants. Uh, and and he's 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 very mannered. He kind yeah. of float. He, he always has like a, a hand on his elbow and another hand on his chin. He's mm-hmm. no matter what's going on. He's, he's very mannered. He's very much like he's playing like a a snooty college professor at some mm-hmm. sort of boarding school movie. Like that's kind of the note that he had. Mm-hmm. And he's having a lot of fun. There's this weird bit where Gerard Butler pulls out his brain and it's like a jewel <laughs> because that's where there was the source of his godlike power and you're like what the fuck is this movie anyway uh, <laughs> it's worth seeing i like gods of egypt I, for how you, stupid crazy it is it's not I, the second time i saw it i was like this isn't quite as bad as i remember it's still really bad but it is, it is, it is quite bad it is entertainingly bad mm. to an extent maybe not the extent to which you agree um a lot of people t- uh, first came to really notice chadwick boseman when he played jackie robinson in the movie 42 mm. it was his first leading role uh yeah and he is really good as Jackie Robinson isn't well, he? he he was really good at adapting to the scope of the material uh, if he knew he was in a big gigantic effects blockbuster he'd play it up yeah he'd play it really broad in something like gods of Egypt when he was in something like 42 that's a, a big sort of 
soft focus Hollywood, you know, prestige picture. Yeah. And he's playing it very sort of straight and almost innocent when he's mm-hmm. in get on up. That's a, like a little bit more of a scrappy indie film. And he's able to stretch mm-hmm. a little bit and be a little bit more raw. I think he brought more anger into 42 than people give him, give him credit mm-hmm. for. Because the thing with Jack with, uh, with 42 is, uh, you know, a lot of that movie is he is being asked not just to play baseball, but also to be a figurehead mm-hmm. and also to be, you know, he's kind of doing publicity a lot of the time. He can't break. Yeah. He can't get mad in public, even though he has every fucking right, based on how he was treated when they were integrating baseball. Uh, and there's a great bit. It, it's, you know, it's almost seems like an Oscar moment, but he doesn't play it that way, where he actually loses his shit just one time backstage. Mm-hmm. And it is such a release because you've been in the movie just like wanting him to just fight back against all these fucking monsters. And yeah, he's frustrated too. And he's, it's a great moment. It's a great release. Great performance. Mm. And yeah, Black Panther, man. Black Panther <laughs> is... I, I, would, I would argue that of all the superhero movies that Marvel has made, mm. Marvel Studios specifically, not just adaptations of Marvel Comics, which have been made everywhere, that's the one that I think will be important later on not because it was part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah, but because it's... it was an important movie and because it was an excellent, smart, thoughtful, visually distinctive movie with an incredibly wonderful cast that means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, it, it's it's great in spite of it being part of the Avengers universe, <laughs> not because of it. I feel like uh, that's... The reason a lot of those movies kind of get a pass is because a lot of affection from the other movies are bleeding yeah. into them. It's like, oh, I love Ant-Man. Really? You love Ant-Man independently or just as yeah. a piece of this bigger puzzle? Well, I think Brian Coogler uh, was wise to treat Black Panther as you really don't need to see the MCU films. Yeah, yeah. You don't. There's like a little crossover with Captain America Civil War because that's where Black Panther was first introduced. That's when his dad died. It's when he became king. But, but you don't need to have seen that. You kind of don't. Like, it would yeah. probably help a little, but like it stands alone. If this was the first Marvel superhero movie, it would have been amazing. Yeah. Uh, but even so, it works mm. as it is. Uh, yeah. It, it was just an incredible motion picture. It was his. It was Chadwick Boseman's idea. I I don't remember if this was Ryan Coogler's thought hmm. or it was a studio mandate, but uh, they they wanted the the citizens of Wakanda to have British accents. Oh, uh, just because they they thought it sounded classy because they're uh. American filmmakers and. Chadwick Boseman rightfully pointed out if they have British accents, it means they were colonialized. Yeah, and that's and, the exact and they opposite and they of the point. Yeah, the, the idea is this is an independent African nation. You know, it's funny. I actually, I asked Chadwick Boseman when mm. Civil War came out. I got, was the, I got to interview him twice. Like once when Civil War came out, I think another time when Civil War was coming out on home video. All right. And he, really wonderful man. And the first time I, I, I think I asked him, Wakanda is a fictional country. Mm. What did you base the accent on? Because yeah, he had okay. a lot of options. Yeah. And I think he... I'm trying to remember what exactly he said. I think he said it was like partly based a little bit on Nelson Mandela, but like a bunch of other things as well. And I wish I could remember them all. Mm. But he did think about it. He cared about that a yeah, lot. Yeah. And that, it's that attention to detail that made it amazing. Mm. And, uh, uh, and his most recent performance, if you haven't seen it yet, is a small but incredible role in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. One of the best films of this year. Absolutely yeah. one of the best films of this year. One of the best Vietnam War films I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't want to ruin, like, the role he plays in case you haven't seen it. But, like, he's 
not in it a lot, but he completely drives it. Mm. And he's absolutely indelible in it, and he's incredible, and he's great. And he has one more movie that uh, we do get. Mm. Uh, it's called uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's uh, August Wilson. Yeah. It's based on an August Wilson play. And it, he co-stars with Viola Davis and Glenn Turman and... I can't wait to see that. That's mm. going to be on Netflix. It's allegedly before the end of the year, but I don't know. There isn't like an official oh, release I'm, date yet. I'm looking it up. It's directed by George C. Wolfe. He directed the original Angels in America on, oh. on Broadway. So well, that's yeah, cool. good, uh, good Great. theatrical production. That's amazing. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's. He, he, he. Again, he was, he was fighting, and I, I hope you know that there was an, uh, there was, there seemed like a light at the end of the tunnel. Like you would, there would be mm. hope that he would overcome uh but in the process he he left us so many wonderful performances so uh chadwick boseman you will be missed and i think you will be remembered for as long as legends are remembered no no one no one disliked this guy denzel washington paid for his tuition i heard about that that. i just heard about that all all these incredible facts about him started surfacing after his death like Okay, this, this kid's, a, re- talent. This kid's yeah. a really good actor. I'm going to pay for his tuition. Well, yeah. thank you, Denzel Washington. Oh my God. Um, so, yes, we're, mm. we were huge fans, and bless the man, he will be missed. And mm. again, uh, we let this be a reminder, if you're of the age where you need to start thinking about it, colonoscopies are actually a very important medical procedure, and I highly recommend getting checked out if you haven't already. Uh Hopefully everything's fine, but it's much, much better to catch these things at an early age. So, yeah. Okay. And there just is no good segue uh, between that incredibly sad news Mm. and this incredibly light, frothy movie, which is the biggest release of the week that we saw. And that is Bill and Ted Face the Music, uh, the third film in the Bill and Ted series, which I think people forget was considered like cinemata non grata to the studio when it was made like it was shelved for like two years the first movie because they thought no one would give a shit and it ended up being a huge hit and i remember when bill and ted came out i was a kid at the time but it was a big deal like it was very very was it creative yeah it was the american take on doctor who but with slackers because they enter a phone booth and they go back in time and Mm. shit but like it was imaginative it was reasonably well written there's some shit in it that hasn't aged well but not not a lot compared to a lot of other contemporary films of the era, and dude, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves are charming as fuck. The, this I think that the secret alchemy to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is the fact that they're so likable. Yeah, they're just nice guys. They're sweet kids. Yeah, uh, I think like yeah. that that film and Wayne Wayne's World between the two of them really kind of uh, posited that guys who are into metal aren't like loser wasteoids or satan worshipers or any of the other cliches that were running around just sort of nice nice guys they're 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 teenagers yeah (laughs) (laughs) they're just teenagers who like metal and uh, that's it the fun part about bill and ted's excellent adventure is it's about them on a quest there's not like a villain trying to stop them well it's also sweet because you know they're they're presented as these slackers and they're like they're 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 dumb but yeah they're they're, charmingly dumb yeah like they're they're talking about um who did they say was a salad dressing dude? Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> Caesar was a salad dressing dude. Like who, that was who their. Is, who was Joan of Arc? I don't know. Noah's wife. Yeah. Yeah. That, like that's, that's the gag. They're they're goofs. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is 
the movie believes in them and it actually says, yeah, they're goofs. And the last line of the movie is they get better. Mm. The whole point <laughs> is that they're, they're, they'll get their shit together someday. Mm. And that, you know, just because they're slackers now doesn't mean we should give up on them. And it's really sweet. And on top of it all, they get to go to medieval times and meet Billy the Kid and all these other really wonderful, you know, mm. create, uh, figures from all throughout history. Fro Freud and Socrates. And Genghis Khan. And so we're going to pick up Socrates. I can't find him in the book. Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, thanks. <laughs> all we are is dust in the wind, mm. dude. Mm. Like, it's... Very creative and charming. Yeah, they're, I, the they're movie from, holds up pretty damn good. They're from San Dimas, California. Mm. Uh, it was one of my favorite films when I was ten. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched it. I watched that heck out of that movie. Yeah. There was a sequel a few years later called Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which wasn't a time travel movie. No, they it changed they, the premise. They changed the premise, and initially there was some. I remember some people kind of rejecting it because they wanted more time travel because that's what it was before, but they actually got really crazy and ambitious in that one. Mm. And that movie is everything. Because the whole <laughs> thing is, it's been a few years, they're out of high school, they haven't made it big yet, and someone from the future wants to prevent them from creating a utopian society through their music. Mm. And so he goes back in time to kill them and replace them with sophisticated robots. The bad guy is named uh, Denomalos? Oh yeah, which is that. Ed Solomon backwards. Oh, that's good. Ed Solomon's <laughs> Ed one Solomon's of the writers. Ed Solomon's one yeah. of the writers. So yeah, I just gave him the same name. Never backwards. put that together. That's hilarious. But in um, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, mm -hmm. they die, and they're, actually they're good kids, so they were about to like to go to heaven and shit, and they're like, no, wait, we have to stick around because these evil robots are going to kill our girlfriends, mm -hmm. and so they end up trying to contact. Ted's stepmom, who used to be Bill's stepmom, who used to be in high school with both of them, and who in the next movie is married to Bill's, uh, sorry, to Ted's brother now. So, consistency. It's, it's, it's all very strange. It's all um, very silly, but they, they, get, they get exercised, and they, they end up they, going to hell. They're sent to hell. They, yeah. they see Satan. Uh, how's it going? Bill's above, they say. Uh, yeah. They, they, Shout out the devil! They, they get to uh, explore their own personal hells, but yeah. then they escape. What with, I love about uh, them with, is they're such good kids uh, that they don't have anything that bad. Like, their horrible nightmare hell scenarios is like having to kiss their grandma, or mm -hmm. that one time they ate a chocolate bunny that wasn't theirs. Like, they actually yeah. didn't do anything that yeah. bad. And anyway, that's Bill, what and Ted, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a really wild film. It's yeah. just really bizarre. It's got it's really creative visually. They meet Death, uh, played by William Sadler, yeah. and they play Twister with him. They go to heaven and they recruit aliens in order to be mm. part of their band. And I, in the end, they rock the entire planet with Death on bass. Uh, and, and and those robots as their backup dancers because uh, no, they have they're, good they're good, good robots good robot clones of themselves as their backup dancers. They, they, the the bad the, robots the are alien, disposed of. The aliens are on bongos yeah. uh, and they play a kiss song and that's supposed to unite the world. Uh, the, yeah. the whole premise it's a pretty is, good kiss song, but it's also a pretty generic kiss song. The re, it's something the, I never quite bought. But the anyway. reason they go off on all these adventures is their lives have to be laid out in a certain way because they are destined to change the future for the better. They're essentially messiah figures in the future. Yeah, and their rock music. Music, Wild Stallions music is going to unite humanity. Yeah. But uh, if things go wrong, then they won't have a chance to get the band together and play and win Battle of the Bands and unite humanity. Uh, I felt like when I watched Bogus Journey, I felt mm -hmm. like they kind of wrapped it up in a neat little ribbon. I thought that was the whole point. They played the, they played at the end. Mm -hmm. The uh, music was like 
through sci-fi means streamed into the TVs of every single TV on the planet. And everyone saw how awesome that they were. And mm. everyone was united by the power of rock. And then there was this big montage of like headlines of like their success story afterwards. And the implication was, and everything there's, turned there's, out okay. The story they, is over. Yeah. And then uh, for a long time, they talked about maybe doing a sequel. Maybe we'll do a sequel. It mm. is a fun idea. We love these characters. And now here we are. And they have made Bill and Ted face the music, which takes place like 25 years later. And Bill and Ted, they had a, they had a hit. Mm. Then they were they were famous. And then they sauntered slowly downwards mm. into nothingness again. Uh, and and now, they still haven't actually changed yeah, the world. Bill and Ted, uh, just like Alex Winter. Alex Winter came out of retirement to be in this movie. He, uh, he, he came out of acting retirement. Yeah, he'd still he'd, been directing and producing. He, yeah, he'd, he'd stopped acting. He'd done like li- little voice roles and cameos in his, his own films here and there. But he was doing like documentary films. Yeah, he he's did a respected documentary. He, he did a really wonderful cult comedy that I mentioned often called Freaked. He wrote and so directed that one. It's and hilarious. really, 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 really good. Is that the only movie ever to have a flashback from the perspective of a wrench? It might be. Okay. Well, and, we, we, which, which was turned into a hammer. But yeah, <laughs> the horrible story of how a wrench got turned into a hammer. <laughs> and then it makes Mr. T cry. Great movie. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Uh, he did this really weird noir film called Fever, which nobody oh, ever I saw. saw that yeah, okay. uh, yeah it's, it's this really kind of actorly thing where hmm. it's very few settings. He in that film very famously kept many cameras rolling simultaneously so he could have like scenes play out in their entirety rather okay. than do like shot reverse shot and edit all together mm-hmm. after the fact which that was kind of common practice but i imagine yeah. he put up like a bunch yeah yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. He, uh, that just he felt that was a better way to go about making movies yeah uh, yeah, and then he just wasn't making movies or acting in movies for a long time. He came out of acting retirement just because he and Keanu Reeves became friends working on those Bill and Ted movies. Yeah. Uh, and they just they just decided this was time. Yeah. Now they're 55. They may as well do it. Uh, now Bill and Ted are both 55. And they behave exactly the same way. They're the same dudes. Exactly uh, the same dudes. They're just they're, older now and it's getting a little sad. They have uh, two do- They each have a daughter uh, who are in their 20s. Uh, they, they would about, they would be about twenty five yeah, now, yeah, because yeah, so they were yeah, they were babies the, when they, the end of Bill's and, journey. And uh, the two daughters behave exactly like Bill and Ted did when they were there, that age. Yeah, and it's their malaise is now that they since they haven't uh, been able to write that one song that was supposed to unite humanity, and they're fifty five, they feel the clock is ticking on them, and they never gave up. Like yeah. every single time, they're like, "I'm going to write that song today," and they just never do it. So they've been experimenting a lot, and they play at a wedding, and they play this piece of music that's actually pretty interesting to listen to. I but, actually thought there's a yeah. joke where at the beginning they're playing Missy's Wedding to Ted's brother, mm. and the idea is that maybe this will be the song. And they play the song, and it's got like theremin and Mongolian throat singing, and it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's, it sounds fun. <laughs> I don't know it's, if it would unite the universe, yeah. but I would actually totally listen to that track. <laughs> it's, it's actually a cool track. Mm. Um, but, but that's the, kind of the point is they actually aren't bad at this, but they have to be better than any song ever mm. written, and, and that's, that's such a high standard. Yeah. And they were actually running out of time because it turns out, as we have since learned, I guess yeah. records were spotty. Uh, Bill and Ted don't save the universe by like starting a cult and a religion based on their music or whatever. They save the universe because time itself is unraveling and they're going to put on a show that actually unites all of time and space at this exact moment. And at the beginning of the film, they have 71 minutes. 
<laughs> yeah. And that's about the rest of the length of the movie. <laughs> it's uh, such a fun premise. From what, go- what goes on from there is uh, Bill and Ted's story is that they're traveling for ever slowly forward in the future to their future selves looking to steal the song from themselves. Yeah, eventually we're going to write it, so, so let's, let's just take it from yeah, ourselves. Because uh, Kristen Schaal, visiting from the future, has brought them a time machine. Uh, Makes sense. So they're, they're uh, on a quest, and each time they visit themselves, they see how they've kind of deteriorated a little bit more. And it gets really ridiculous, I, and I laughed my butt off, especially the last, like, the second hmm. to last time without ruining anything, hmm. when it just goes in a totally different direction and it's like a weird farcical my python bit <laughs> it's so great uh but meanwhile and then there then the b plot is uh the two daughters also named bill and ted mm-hmm. uh who bill are played by samara weaving uh mm-hmm. who is uh, a a brilliant actor and uh mm-hmm. you probably know her from ready or not uh that was kind of a big breakout role mm-hmm. for her but she's also been marvelous in stuff like mayhem and uh not not for nothing and apparently She's, um, a, she's Hugo Weaving's niece, which apparently Ken Reeves was just like, oh, well, we got to put her in here. I worked with Hugo Weaving on three Matrix movies. Oh, there, there uh, So, like, it, I don't, they, they just have a connection. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so she's uh, she's young uh, Ted. Ted, Thea, uh-huh. uh, who is Bill's daughter, not Ted's daughter, mm-hmm. just to make it a little confusing. And then uh, Ted's yeah. daughter, Billy, uh, is played by Bridget Lundy Payne, and mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are... Both awesome. Both of them give uh, amazing performances. Samar Weaving is fine. Uh, oh. Brid- Bridget Lundy Payne nails Keanu Reeves. Yeah, like they gave they have every single little mannerism mm. and head movement yeah. from teenage Keanu Reeves. No, no, no. They nail it. But yeah. I will say this: they, I think Samar Weaving is nail... just she's always that good. So maybe she doesn't uh, stand out. Uh, but but uh, I feel like uh, Bridget Lundy Payne is more devoted to the role than Keanu Reeves is. Keanu Reeves seems tired. Well, I think that's in his character. He's supposed to be kind of winding down a little bit and losing motivation. I suppose so, but Alex Winter is there for it. And I think the Bill and Ted movies in general feel a little bit more like Alex Winter's brainchild than Keanu Reeves. Yeah, it's probably fair. Because they're they're really broad and wild and strange, and that's a little bit more in keeping with Alex Winter's sense of humor, because I've seen his movies. Uh, Keanu Reeves has, you know, he, he has sort of the more successful acting career. Mm-hmm. He's mellowed out as a person. Yeah. You see him in interviews and he's just sort of chill and you're like, oh, he's just a nice dude. And he's now. been that chill for like 20, 25 yeah, years yeah. now, but he's he's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, I think that's fair to say. And, and I think... And, uh, and, um, he, and he's there and he's... Yeah, I feel like he's like kind of sleepwalking a little bit. I, I don't and, feel like he's sleepwalking. I just feel like he's tired. I feel like that's yeah. in the character, but I also see your point. Uh, but uh, despite all of these things, you know, there's crazy time travel plots. There's yeah. an assassin oh, robot from the future who's <laughs> after them. And the, assassin, and the assassin robot is neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> that really is hilarious. About his job. Yeah. And also, uh, they, uh, also uh, their daughters uh, have to go back in time to assemble the perfect backup band so that when Bill and Ted do play and save all of reality... They have the right accompaniment, so they get to have the actual old-fashioned Bill and Ted story going yeah. back in time and so collecting they, people like Jimi Hendrix and Louis Armstrong. The daughters get a remake of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, mm-hmm. whereas uh, it, Bill and Ted get a, essentially a remake of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Uh, because kinda. eventually they do end up in hell, yeah. uh, and Death does return as, as a character, again, played by William Sadler. Yeah. 
Uh, the whole bit's amazing. And, and I, I loved sort of a lot of the catch-up. There's all this crazy stuff and all these wild characters and different timelines and time travel, mm-hmm. and yet it feels weirdly lo-fi. That's the thing that, yeah, really, that really struck it's, me here. It's it not feels like a little... It's, it's, optimistic and fun but it's not really slick and no, that's that's, that's, so weird. that's a detriment I think. I think it is it doesn't feel like here's the deal it's great to see Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter back together again mm. you, you whether you think it's motivated or just maybe kind of a sleepy performance um there Keanu Reeves is fun and Alex Winters is fun mm. uh there's a lot of great ideas in this there's a lot of great cast in this. Seriously, Samara, I would I would see an entire movie that was just Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne. Yeah, they're they're amazing. Uh, I laughed. I think the script is full of really wonderful ideas, mm-hmm. and it just feels kind of cheap. Yeah, it, it just it, I don't it mean cheap as like in a... like phony. It feels inexpensive in a way that actually does the story a little bit of a disservice. And like I know the other movies weren't super expensive, but they felt like a little bit more time had been put into making all of the details feel cool yeah, well, and like feel lived in and feel right. And here it feels um, a little rushed, a little clean. The cinematography is like so bright it almost looks like. Like you know, TV, yeah, like TV, yeah. and like, but not like, but not like you know HBO TV, like mm. sitcom TV a lot of the time, and it, it brings it down a little bit. It doesn't ruin it, but it does make it yeah, feel um, a little less than the the first movie was like kind of scrappy, had, yeah. even though it's about metalheads, it had sort of a punky sensibility to it. Uh, the the second one is just an explosion of great production design. Yeah. And Those robots, you, like the second robots that they make, that yeah. are just like handmade from stuff that they found like mm. at a supermarket, and it looks it, but they also look totally awesome. Uh, That's great. That's great uh, production design. I love those Ke- things. Kevin Yeager did the special effects, and there's oh, just all these really, great. really wonderful like animatronics yeah. and stuff. Yeager, Yeager is an mm. underappreciated visual effects impresario, mm. and seriously, look at the films that he's worked on. He's mm. made, especially with animatronics, he's made some amazing yeah. stuff. And. Uh, but I think in the modern age, when you're sort of shooting a lot of people against green screens, it takes so much more money and effort to clutter up the frame with interesting stuff. Let's just make it look real. Then, yeah, it, then looks, it looks like green screen. There, there used to be a, a just an easy way to make a set look interesting. Just build an interesting set. Yeah. The, you know, if you remember some of the hell sets in, in yeah. Bogus Journey. Just rocks and shit. Like, yeah. But it looks good. It, it just looks really cool. This one looks really kind of, it looks really sterile and cheap because yeah. they're using a lot of C. CGI, people are standing in front of green screen saying, whoa, but they're not designing it in an interesting sort of way. Not especially. And there are type, there are parts of the movie that are supposed to look lo-fi, like some of Bill and Ted's futures, they're, where they're not successful or getting kind of sad, and those shouldn't mm-hmm. look too good. I, I get that. That makes mm-hmm. sense. But there is stuff in this that is clearly supposed to look cool, like when we go to the future of like, you know, the far distant future where they're trying to figure out how to stop everything, and it's like... It looked cooler when it was like clearly a soundstage. Yeah. When it was clearly a soundstage with some really sharp angles of light and a couple of like spacey new wave like desks and costumes and hair and things. And now you've added all this CGI and it looks like of the first pass on Phantom Menace. Now, again, the movie overcomes this, I think. I think it's delightful. I had a really good time watching it. I was really amused. I laughed a lot. Um, I saw the ending coming, but it's a really sweet ending, and I think it I think it's one of the better examples of how to do nostalgia right in terms mm. of like how to handle nostalgia because clearly we're doing this because we love the original movies. However, this isn't just a love letter to the original movies. I think the be- I was thinking about this as I was watching the movie, like what makes certain kinds of nostalgic films 
feel just like dipping into the well for a cash grab and what makes other ones feel like really special. Mm. And I think it's the good ones or the best ones tend to look back into the past while also making way for the future. Mm. You know, we're not just saying all this stuff was awesome. It's like all this stuff was awesome and it brought us to now. And now that we have this awesome thing in our past, our future can be even better because there's a new generation and shit. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's a generational story mm. with their with the young Bill and Ted. And I think that bit works. I think it's really sweet. I think it's really endearing. I think the message is really cool. Um, and uh, I really liked it. It's it's a little cheaper mm. than it should be. I, I wish they had a slightly bigger budget. I think it really would have smoothed over some of the edges. But that's not the worst problem to have. I'd rather have something that's really nicely written with a lot of creativity and a really charming cast and a couple of wonky visual effects than the opposite. What What's, I think, really striking about this movie is a lot of modern uh, fantasy films... Are, are have an element of dourness to them. Yeah. There's, there's not a, a, a celebratory element to a lot of these fantasy movies. Like you saw the trailer for mm. the upcoming Ghostbusters, right? And it's all about mm. how, like, yeah, they mm. they saved the world, and now nobody believes they ever existed, and it's all sad. And I'm like, or, that, uh, it's like, oh. or the characters are kind of pathetic in a way. Yeah. Or, and, know, and here it's Bill and Ted's are pathetic, but they never stopped being pathetic. Yeah. So it's well, kind of fitting. It's they. <laughs> It's, it's here, fine in this case. Here, here's how paltry my own imagination is. When I heard they were making uh, a, a third Bill and Ted movie, I was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. We, we don't need to go back to that well. That that was 88 and 91. We were good. Mm-hmm. And, Wrapped uh, it up nicely in a little bow. And uh, they said, no, we're, they're going to come back. They're going to make a, music, uh, a new film. It's going to be called Bill and Ted Face the Music. I was like, oh, so they're going to have to sort of face the fact that they kind of need to settle for mediocrity now and find mm. happiness in a life that isn't a rock star's life. Like what happens to mm. uh, somebody who just keeps on trying to be a rock star and trying to be cool and they just sort of age out eventually. Yeah. And that's what happens to Bill and Ted. They're playing like smaller and smaller venues mm-hmm. and they become kind of pathetic shadows of their former selves. And except for that whole and, song thing, their mm. biggest issue in the whole film is is our constant pursuit of this dream that eludes us ruining our marriages. Yeah, and is, yeah. is it going to be worth it? And I thought they were going to grow up, they were going to be 55-year-old men who and, are, are now reasonably intelligent. And there'd and, be no time travel whatsoever. And there, yeah, I thought, there was, I thought there was going to be no fantasy elements whatsoever. Mm. It was just going to be them sort of talking out sort of how sad their lives are. I think now that, now that good, the fantasy part is over. I think that'd be a better sketch or a short mm. film than a feature. I think it would be a fine feature. Along, you know, just get Wayne Wang to direct it. You know, some, oh. somebody like a really subdued I would, director. I would love to see yeah. it, but I'm not sure that would be. But that's as satisfying as what we got. I suppose not. It's just uh, I, I think uh, people demanded the time travel and going to hell and all the wacky yeah. characters, so that that's the film we got. Yeah. And I appreciate that we have a film that has no villainy. It's just about trying to achieve something, just like the first movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really great, and I liked it a lot, and. Um, yeah, I, I, if anything, like going straight to streaming might be better for this film because I think if you like, you paid twenty dollars a ticket to see this, the visual effects might be a bit more disappointing. Mm. But if you're just at home and you're just you know on your couch and eager to see a Bill and Ted movie, you might be a little bit more forgiving about those kinds of really not very important issues and just appreciate the characters and the story. And yeah. I think you'll really like it. I really liked it. I think it's really sweet. Is it the best one in the series? No. <laughs> That's Bogus Journey. That's Yeah, it's probably Bogus Journey. Mm. It's probably overall. But you know what? I'd say this is like really close number three. 
Like okay. it goes Bogus Journey, the original, and like this one. And honestly, depending on my mood, I'll see how this one sits a little longer. It might even be my number two. Like it's really sweet. So I just like the cast. I like the cast so much. Mm. And it's not because the first one rested mostly on Bill and Ted and a little bit of George Carlin. Here we got a wonderful ensemble. And yeah. I think that elevates it a little bit. All right, let's move on. Uh, so the next two films that we're reviewing, uh, each of us only saw one of them. Mm. And I think the bigger one is the private something history. <laughs> the personal history of David Copperfield. The private diary of David Copperfield. Well, the original title of, of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield was The Personal History, Adventures, Experience, and Observation of David Copperfield, the Younger of Blunderstone Rookery. Oh, so it would have been uh, it would have been good fodder for our ridiculously long titles. And uh, we, li- podcast uh, we just uh, additionally, which he never meant to publish on any account. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> fuck you, Dickens. That's that's just silly. You're just being silly, Dickens. Uh, a lot of people call David Copperfield uh, Dickens' best work. I disagree. Mm. Uh, You're one of those but, Bleak House people, aren't you? But it, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's Bleak House. Just, just it is. <laughs> it's not Barnaby Rudge. It's not our mutual friend. It's not the one he didn't finish. I want to start. Yeah. I want to just start like a snooty Charles Dickens podcast. Why not? I don't know because I don't have time to read that much anymore. Like, <laughs> well, you want to read a whole Dickens book a week? Like on top of all the other shit we're doing? Yeah, that's one, a lot. one Dickens book a week. That's a lot. Steam through. Like, that's a lot, isn't it? Um, it was uh, published in 1850 uh, after it was already serialized in magazines. It's the one book that comes right in the middle of Dickens' bibliography. Mm. And uh, it also, it's also, uh, a lot of people have said, his most autobiographical. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's worth remembering for people who like might not, you know, it might might have been a while since English class, or it's never really been your passion. Dickens was not some stick in the mud author. Dickens was the Stephen King of his time. No, he was a uh, superstar. Between not only was he a superstar, but between Dickens and Jane Austen, they kind of reinvented the modern novel in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, I encourage you if you're interested in li- in literature and sort of the evolution of the novel. Find out, find an author named Fanny Burney. Oh, yeah. Fanny Burney wrote uh, novels with just very boring titles, Camilla, Evangelina. And uh, they're all, they're these stagey parlor room romances about, uh, you know, pain society women who have these romances that they can, they can never speak their names. And you mm. spend 50, 50 pages of people having these very long conversations and you realize they haven't left the room yet. And like <laughs> nothing is happening in this book. It's desert dry. These things are boring. Mm. Fanny Burney is a boring author. And I've take read... that Fanny Burney <laughs> hot takes. Meanwhile, uh, Dickens and Jane, you know, the age of the novel started to roll around in the 19th century and Dickens and Jane Austen turned them into these sort of high, almost musical theater experiences Mm -hmm. with these really broad, funny characters in Dickens case with really funny names. (laughs) Uh, uh, If you've heard of the band Uriah Heep. Your Eye Heap is a character from David Copperfield. Mm. And then uh, the, and Jane Austen, mm. in the process, was kind of subverting a lot of those ideas mm. of uh, sort of the proper British romance novel and, and, and being very to, witty and, and seriously, like genuinely subversive about it. Yeah. Like from the first line of Pride and Prejudice onward, that book mm. is just a takedown. It's so funny. Uh, but now we have uh, Armando Iannucci. Mm-hmm. directing a, f- a new film version. There have been numerous film versions of David Copperfield over mm-hmm. the years. I, I quite uh, like the one uh, from the 1930s uh, with um, not Charles Lawton, with uh, W.C. Fields. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good one. 
Uh, but yeah, the, the story is, you know, the story, young David Copperfield. <laughs> no, falls into don't the, assume this. Don't assume they know this story. David Copperfield is a young man who falls into the, uh, the care of his, an except just a, a, a series of caretakers, essentially first mm. an eccentric aunt, then an eccentric caretaker, then, uh, eventually Uriah Heep, who's just this sniveling bastard. And as he goes along, he sort of grows as a character and learns to be a lot more adult and confront these people, uh, and become a much more dynamic adult. Uh, mm. Dickens is often criticized as being, uh, as writing his protagonists as having little personality, where all of the supporting cast are the really interesting characters, but the main characters are usually really boring. Oliver I think, Twist. Uh, yeah, Oliver, just any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just, that's, yeah. A good, that's a good example I think most people are know of. They've probably seen the musical yeah, or and, whatever. And, and, you know, Nicholas Nickleby. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, yeah, and David Copperfield as well. And... Uh, Armando Yanucci is not going to let that happen. <laughs> he casts uh, Dev Patel as David Copperfield. I love and, him so much. He's a great actor. And he's going to overdress everyone. He's going to edit the Dickens out of this thing. Thank you. He is going to add color and life and music and movement to Dickens in a way that we don't usually get in cinema. I think a lot of filmmakers are trying to stick a little bit to the letter of the law, as it were, when it comes to, to adapting Dickens. As such, a lot of Dickens adaptations are pretty dry. Uh, I feel like this one, very much like Autumn to Wilde's Emma from earlier this year, mm. an Austin adaptation, uh, they're really trying to remind people how juicy and frothy these stories are. I love those periods mm. in Hollywood history, and we go through them every 10, 20 years or so. Usually we take a break for a while. When we start revisiting the classics, whether they're Jane Austen, Dickens, Shakespeare, whatever, and we start sort of updating them for the modern day. And sometimes it just seems like, look, we got Saoirse Ronan. (laughs) Who else is going to play Joe in Little Women? We have Saoirse Ronan, and we have Emma Watson, and we have Florence Pugh. Like, what the fuck well, else are we going to do? Put them in them? a Little Women yeah, adaptation. Like, but my God, we would miss our we would miss mm. our chance otherwise. Like, it's the fun of. I'm waiting for Shakespeare to come back. I'm waiting for some there's, really high profile Shakespeare adaptations to come back again. There's a new uh, Measure for Measure coming out next week. I'm so, telling you, uh, Kenneth Branagh is like waiting, waiting, waiting until he's old enough to do King Lear. <laughs> like he's waiting. And he's going to do it. And it's going to be great. He could do it now. If he, he could totally to, do it now, and he totally should. Kenneth. I know you're listening. Sorry. I know he's a big fan. Yes. I, Kenneth. Kenneth. Now is the time. Can, can we, Don't can wait. We talk, can we talk podcaster to Shakespearean director? <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, I, uh, the mm. 90s was rife with these kinds of adaptations, and it was a really fun time. Yeah. And a yeah. lot of them were really good. Some of them are, some of them are well talked about now, like Sense and Sensibility, and some less so. The Gwyneth Paltrow version of Emma is a delight. It's fine. It's, it's really good. I, like, I think it's kind of outstripped by Autumn DeWilde's version. I still haven't seen yeah. the new one, but All the right. Gwyneth Paltrow one's still good. Like, you should still see it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so, anyway, I love this. I love it when this happens. But it, And because it is a big British production of uh, one of England's most celebrated authors, of course, you're going to attract a very interesting cast. So, uh, Dev Patel is David Copperfield, but we have uh, Tilda Swinton as Aunt Trotwood. We oh, have Peter Capaldi as Mr. Micawber. Uh, mm. We have... Uh, ben Wishaw plays Uriah Heep in this page boy haircut. Ben Wishaw can do anything as far as I'm concerned. He's a really underappreciated actor yeah. in general, I think. Uh, Mr. Wickfield is played by Benedict Wong, because why ah, not? Yeah, That's um, cool. They're really trying to liven up this material. It's not in 
entirely accurate, but who cares? Mm. I mean, it, it, it's David Copperfield. I think it's well ingrained in the consciousness enough that you can play with it a little bit. That's always, listen, Dickens is a little arch. Not, mm. not, not always really arch, mm. but he's a little arch. He knew what he was naming his characters. Yeah. He knows that they're, they're filling roles in a story and some things are a little larger than life. And Dickens was really handsome, if I recall. He looked just like Dan Stevens. If you've ever I, 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 seen the man, the man who, who invented, invented Christmas, the man who invented Christmas is one of the most shameless Oscar bait movies in years, and it stars mm. fucking Dan Stevens as, as Dickens, as Dickens, as he is trying to. He hasn't written a hit novel in a while, and he decides to make a Christmas novel, and everyone's like, "Christmas, mm. Christmas is over. Nobody celebrates Christmas anymore. What are you going to do? Save Christmas?" And then he just holds himself up in an attic and, like, has long conversations with Scrooge and his own father and shit. Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. Who just sort of manifests in front of him. It's absurd. Mm. Kind of fun, but totally absurd. It's it's fun because it's stupid. It's really stupid. It's like a lot. It's got all of the subtlety of a Lifetime original, like, biographical film. Yeah. Uh, like Magic Beyond Words, the J.K. Rowling story, which is like all <laughs> foreshadowing and stuff in her books. Like it's like that, it, but it got it, more money. Did it foreshadow her horrible Twitter tirades? Oh, God. <laughs> it's time for a sequel. Um, mm. oh, God. Sorry to bring that up. No, but, it's a real bummer, mm. isn't it? Um, but uh, but anyway, so but but so this is a good version. This it's is a good version. Okay, it, great. It's, yeah, it, it's it's really trying to uh, remind us. That Dickens is fun. Yeah. Uh, Dickens is really, really wonderful. And I, I feel like uh, the, the time is now mm. to, to revisit something like David Copperfield. And yeah. I think this one hits all of the beats. If you're the type of person who skips the book and watches the movie instead, you're going to be getting a bad version of it. Oh, uh, but it's an inaccurate version. It's, it's inaccurate. It's, you're, you're they, not they going mess to, with the story. If, if you're 14 and you're looking to write a book report and you don't want to read David Copperfield, you're going to get a bad grade if you base it on this movie. Yeah. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. But so what you're also, saying... Also, read, just read Dickens. It's yeah. fun. It feels good to read Dickens. And uh, so what you're saying is that people uh, can go into this movie with great expectations. Oh, my God. I'm, 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 I'm trying to think of... Some sort of other Dickens title pun. Um, you you slam the little door it on you. I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> You're an old curiosity schnook. I don't, I don't got nothing. I apologize. What an Oliver Twist. Uh, okay, so. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to check this I'll one out. I'll drown you in our mutual I'm, friend. I'm sorry I missed this. The it, sounds, it sounds good. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, I saw a movie in which Megan Fox plays a mercenary who fights a lion. You know, you could have watched a Dickens adaptation. Why'd you watch the Megan Fox movie? Because a movie where Megan Fox fights a lion. That's why. What do you All want right, from me? I'm fine. Um, okay, so it's a movie. I it's like called, Megan Fox. I like Megan Fox, too. It's called Rogue. Uh, and it's actually got a really, like, very pleasingly efficient hmm. idea. So it is about uh, mercenaries who are, uh, they're going after uh, human traffickers in Africa because some wealthy, like, mafioso or dictator or whatever, like, their daughter has been kidnapped. Mm. So they're there to rescue the daughter. The plan goes bad. Uh, They end up being chased throughout the desert, and they end up having to ditch all of their gear and, like, jump with the hostages, like, over a cliff, and now they're kind of stranded and lost. And when they finally find shelter, as they're being chased by all these heavily armed bad guys, 
uh, when they finally find shelter, they find shelter at a lion farm. And this lion farm is where, uh, you know, rich assholes will come to hunt a lion and get their picture taken with it. Uh, and they're just the lions are just kept in cages until their time has come. And it's really yeah. fucking sad and tragic. What they don't realize is that in the prologue of the film, the lions escaped and killed everybody. Mm-hmm. So we're on the side of the lions. <laughs> it's pretty great. So they're here and they're like making camp. And it's like, oh, what happened here? It's something really horrible. There's blood everywhere and all the generators are out of power. And then every once in a while, someone will just get killed by a lion. <laughs> every once in a while, it's really witty, this film. Um, and then, of course, it all leads to a big showdown at the end when the when the, the villains attack and mm-hmm. the heroes have to fight them off. And meanwhile, everyone's getting killed by lions. That's a fun pitch. All right. I'm not going to lie. Uh, there's a lot of like... Any pitch that ends with, and then everyone's getting killed by a lion. That's a good pitch. Yeah. No, oftentimes this kind of like animals mm. attack movie, you know, I, I can get into the fun of it. We recently did an episode of the Screen Drafts podcast where we talked about the best animals attack movies ever made. Yeah. And there's two kinds of animals attack movies. There's ones where animals are attacking for mm. some goofy reason. Yeah. You know, like uh, they're possessed by monsters or they're... You know, they're cyborg dogs or whatever. Some bizarre, ridiculous reason. And then there's movies where they're just animals. And the movie kind of runs the risk of demonizing them. And here, I think they actually have a really good balance where the lions... Yeah, they're attacking humans, but they're Mm -hmm. very justified. Like, we're on the lion's side from the opening scene. And that's pretty strong. Yeah. Uh, The cast of the mercenaries uh, ranges from pretty good... To actually, this is kind of better than I expected from this movie. Uh, the real standout in the cast is actually an actor named Philip Winchester. Okay. Uh, who he's just, he, he's one of those guys who's been in everything. Like you would have seen him in like a small role in The Patriot or a small role in like Flyboys. Um, he apparently was in a Law and Order Special Victims Unit for a while. I didn't watch the show, so I don't know. But he's got this really rare quality. Where even if he's saying the stupidest shit, even if he's in the most contrived situations, mm-hmm. he feels natural. And that is a rare gift. And when you see that in an actor, okay. you want to cast them in every ridiculous yeah. movie you could find. Like, this guy needs an MCU role. He will sell that shit. <laughs> he won't look like he's just acting opposite a tennis ball. I believe him. Mm. So he's a real fine. Megan Fox is waffles a bit. The problem with her character is that she actually seems kind of underwritten. Um, She's kind of portrayed as a generic badass, but she doesn't actually get to show herself being a huge badass until the end. Well, that's too bad. So, like, you want to believe her, but we're seeing Mm. all these other characters do these things, and she's just... She's Mm. in charge. She's ordering them around, but they never, like, visually sell Mm. that in any way, uh, which is a bit of a shame. Kind of undercuts uh, her portrayal a bit. Every once in a while, she sings like when not literally, but like when she's like stabbing guys to death or whatever. Like, oh wow, she she looks very believable doing that. That's yeah. cool. But then also there are just dialogue scenes that are clunky. Hmm. Um, but uh, the the real problem with this movie is that it feels like actually not unlike Bill and Ted Face the Music. Budget really hurt them because oh, okay. this is if you throw twenty thirty million dollars at this movie, you're gonna get a treat. I think you're going to have mm-hmm. enough time to really get all the setups real nice. You have time to get the visual effects really, really good. But every single time this movie uses CGI, it's cringeworthy. Oh, gosh. For, right from the beginning when there are CGI lion attacks. And I get it. You don't want to use real lions. 
Mm. You get it. You want to do things that would be difficult to do with like prosthetics or animatronic lions or whatever. I get it. Uh, You didn't have the visual effects for it. And you really needed to shoot around that because every single time there's a CG lion on screen for more than two seconds, Mm. it looks really, really not good. And that sucks because I really want to like this movie. I really love the premise of this movie. Um, so that's a big disappointment. Um, and uh, also just there's just little editing things. And it's hard to tell if it's the edits or maybe the scripts. And because uh, there are like bits where characters know things that they said they didn't know in the previous scene. And there's oh, nothing gosh. really. And it's hard to tell if that's sloppy writing or sloppy editing or what have you. Either way, it's distracting and not great. Hmm. There's this whole thing where, like, you know, it's a problem-solving movie. It's hmm. the characters are screwed. And I love any movie where the characters are completely screwed. That's a great position to be in as a storyteller. Hmm. But you're in a problem-solving situation, and I want to see you, like, work the problem. And they don't always work the problem very well. And that's something hmm. where, like, I feel like I'm ahead of these characters. Like, yeah. if I was here and had a little common sense. And, yeah, I know I would be panicked or whatever, but I have a little more common sense than this. And that hurts the film. And there's also just like weird things that don't make any sense. Like um, there's a whole bit with a guy who uh, he's got uh, night vision goggles. Mm. It's a whole gag or gimmick. Um, He's got night vision goggles and he's like on like a a crow's nest. And he's like watching as like Megan Fox is like walking around in total darkness, Mm. telling her where the lions are. Okay. It's a cool setup. A lot of suspense there. Problem is he drops the damn thing. So he's got to climb down and get him. Well, are there any lions around? Will the lions get Megan Fox? He picks up the the goggles. He finally puts them on. And then we see the POV through the night vision goggles. And then lions right there in front of him goes, it's a a fun gag. Yeah. Problem with the problem is, is that after he's the, the goggles are like knocked away from him and the camera stays in the goggles while he's being killed. Mm. And I'm like, it's not the POV of the inanimate object. This isn't like a video <laughs> camera that's capturing this footage. It was the POV of him. Mm. So this whole bit doesn't really read, even though it seems like kind of a neat idea on paper. But it, we, we're not getting the perspective anymore. We're all oh. of a sudden like, were we a ghost inside of him? And now we're looking through the goggles. Like, it almost sounds like a full moon film. It, it, it would have... Full moon probably would have realized this was too ambitious for them. But it's got that low budget kind of quality. It, it reminded right. me a little bit of... Like with a little bit more panache, this could have been like that Aussie movie uh, Razorback. Okay, I like which, Razorback. Which you and I yeah. are both fans of. There's a there's a really cool uh, Australian horror movie called Razorback from the early 1980s. It was the first film directed by Russell Mulcahy, who would eventually go on to do Highlander. Yeah. Probably still his biggest claim to fame. Um, also did a lot of music videos. He's a big music video director. Um, mm. Razorback is about a giant mutant killer Razorback mm. <laughs> in, in the Outback, and it's killing everybody. And it's a really fun film. Uh, it's got a really bizarre like storytelling structure. Uh, which might be a little off-putting, but it's never dull. And uh, what they realize is that they don't have a good-looking Razorback, so they film it really carefully mm. to make the most of it. And I feel like... It's like a lot in shadows, a lot of extreme close-ups of like a model. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what the situation is in the production, but if I were to hazard a guess, I would have... I, my think, the way it plays is this. They thought it would look cooler in post. Yeah. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have filmed it this way because the movie is actually kind of slick. You know, Mm. that's not a bad looking film. But I feel like if they knew how bad the CGI would turn out, 
they probably would have filmed it differently and like mm. made the most of you know clever camera angles or POV shots or whatever to make the lions not look as distractingly CGI. So that's a shame. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's a real mixed bag. It's a, probably a little. Well, well, we're about we're about to review the films on the critical game scale in a second, but mm. it's definitely not a, a hidden gem you gotta see. But if you really want to see Megan Fox fight lions, there's nowhere else to go. You have to see Rogue. So there you go. Oh my god, that's gonna be on the poster now. You have to see Rogue. Gotta says see William Rogue. <laughs> Out of context, damn it. We're trying not to be quoted. Not to be quoted. Ah, all right. Well, in any case, uh, we're going to review all of our new release films on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, if anyone's new, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C- minus to C+. Plus. The highest you can get is a C+. Plus. That is above average. That is everything from Citizen Kane to just we barely recommend it. <laughs> uh, and then there's C, which is average. Most movies are just average. Yeah. Maybe a little better than good or a little better than average. A little worse but like generally average <laughs> and then there's c minus which is well below average which is just either we just plain don't recommend it or the worst thing ever rogue <laughs> i'm really torn between a low c and a high c minus. i'm gonna be very kind and give it a low c i mean very kind okay. of give it a low c it's not it's not so bad it's like oh this is a c minus get rid of it it's also not so good that i'm comfortable recommending it but there's some cute bits in it, and I like you know some of the gags and some of the action, and uh, so and and some of the cast is good. So I'll I'll give it a C for a right. for a low budget straight to video action movie. Right. In any case, yeah, so <laughs> let's, let's just give it a very low C. Uh, the the lethal personal, case of David, life, David Copperfield, Copperfield and his brother the, David. The le- <laughs> They're both named David. Why not? I don't know. I'm not going to come up with two names for these kids. My soul hurts. Uh, I give it a C plus. It is it is light, fun, uh, just whip crack, smart, fun Dickens adaptation. Okay. I know I said fun twice. All right, and uh, Bill and Ted face the music. I'm going to give it a C plus. It's not a particularly impassioned C plus, but I do think that it's quite a fun film to watch. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a C plus. It's again not super impassioned. Probably not on my list of the best films of the year, but it is absolutely charming. The cast and the cleverness of the screenplay definitely elevate the minor issues with just the cheapness of the production. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, if you love Bill and Ted, definitely see this one. It is a really nice sort of capper on everything. And um, and if you don't know what all the fuss is about, I still think you'll find it very charming. So mm. yeah, definitely check out Bill and Ted Face the Music. All right. That is it for the new releases. And uh, for the uh, back part of the podcast, uh, we, 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 we uh, have a streaming club. Every week we uh, review it's movies. the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. We put a poll out to our listeners uh, and you get to select. Uh, our from, patrons do. Or from, to our patrons. And uh, they get to select from this list of films that either you or I have not seen. Uh, something we get to revisit because this is a time of being locked in and why not mm-hmm. uh, revisit classic cinema? Yeah. Um, I hesitate greatly <laughs> to call this one a piece of classic cinema, but yeah. uh, this was a film that William hadn't seen and, and yeah. we decided to go into to the wonderful depths of Tubi. 
which yeah. is like the third best video store in your town in 1994. Which ironically makes it like the second best streaming service available. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's like Criterion and then Tubi. Like yeah. those are, it's literally goes in that order. It's mm. like Tubi is my second favorite right now. <laughs> it's so diverse and varied and weird and yeah, you can find the craziest stuff on there have, that isn't anywhere else. A lot of it isn't even on home video. Like they have movies that aren't even on like VHS mm. and they've got them. It's so cool. <laughs> So yeah, all there's just this weird, bizarre uh, collection of like cult television from all over the world. They have a wonderfully large horror section, and they have some legit classics sort of lurking in yeah. there from time to they, time. They have some mainstream mm. hits in there that cycle in and out, mm. but uh, yeah, a lot of it's just the if you like quirky cult stuff or just older stuff. Tubi is a great place or to just, go, and it's free. Or just movies. I mean, yeah. a, a lot of these other places are starting to sell themselves as you know studios, like mm-hmm. original content. That's what they're trying to sell you on. Yeah. Tubi says, nah, we just got movies. That's all yeah. we got. You want to see a bunch of movies? We got them. Yeah, and I know and, I know this sounds like we're really shilling for Tubi. We're not making any money off no, of Tubi. No, it's no. just we were trying to explore our streaming options, and we think this one's neat. So we do hope you check it out. Yeah, I, and so they have a section on Tubi mm-hmm. that's called Not on Netflix, which is kind of hilarious, because I'm pretty sure about 90% of the stuff on Tubi is not on not Netflix. Not on Netflix. But that was the channel we chose, just to sort of narrow it down a little mm-hmm. bit. And uh, one of the films we put on there was a film that I, I didn't see. It's based on a Clive Barker story, mm-hmm. which instantly makes me want to see it. Uh, and uh, it was originally critically derided, but I know a lot of people in recent years have argued that The Midnight Meat Train, starring Bradley Cooper, Vinnie Jones, and Leslie Bibb. Leslie Bibb. Uh, Roger is, Bart and Brooke, yeah. Brooke Shields has a role in it. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people arguing that it's be it's a bit of a cult classic. Mm. That maybe got uh, underappreciated in its time. And if you watch it now, you'll say to yourself, oh, that's pretty cool. It has uh, the word midnight in the title, so they tried it out as a midnight movie. Yeah. It was released in, uh, like, dollar theaters. Like, it was actually kind of swept under the rug. Apparently, like, I think it was Lionsgate who produced it, and they didn't like the way it came out. And so they just sort of shoved it under Mm. a rug. And uh, it's from Ryuhei Kitamura, Mm. uh, who has made some really good films. He did a really wacky, crazy, zombie mobster movie called Versus, which is totally nuts. And he did an ultra stylish, super action packed kind of superhero samurai movie uh, called Azumi, which I quite enjoyed. Haven't revisited in a while. Oh, I hope it holds Azumi. up. Okay. Yeah. Azumi has some amazing camera work in it. Like it's really mm. an excitingly photographed samurai picture. Yeah. Uh, he also did Godzilla final wars. Is that, a, which, is that one of the good ones? I haven't no. seen that. Oh, uh, it's, it's one of the worst ones, actually. Uh, Godzilla Final Wars was the final film in the like the millennium cycle of Godzilla movies, and uh, it's notable because it has the most number of monsters in it, like even more than Destroy All Monsters. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, the most notable thing about Godzilla Final Wars is it features a fight between Godzilla and the... American Godzilla from the Roland Emmerich film. Oh yeah, which they've decided in the canon of the Godzilla movies mm. is a different Godzilla. That it was a monster that attacked New York that Americans just thought was Godzilla, but really it was this smaller monster that Toho decided to redub simply Zilla. Yeah. And it's the shortest monster fight in Godzilla yeah. movie history if I'm not uh, mistaken. G- Godzilla picks it up, throws it against the Sydney Opera House and that's the fight. <laughs> And then somebody, somebody uh, like gives off like, oh, that that fish eating monster. I knew it wasn't any good because <laughs> it ate a lot of fish. 
Yeah. They, 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 That's the line from the movie. They That's joke, a lot they, of fish. They joke about it. Um, he also did a live action loop in the third film, which I remember liking a bit, but I saw it on a plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little, little groggy. It, I haven't seen it. I couldn't say. Uh, but anyway, so he's a very varied director. He's worked in a lot of different genres, a lot of different tones. And um, yeah, this is a horror movie based on a short story from one of Clive Barker's Books of Blood, mm-hmm. which means that I have definitely read the short story, and yet somehow I don't remember it at all. <laughs> I definitely read all those books in like high school and this one did not linger in my consciousness. I don't know why. So when I saw the movie, I wasn't like, oh, I know everything that's going on here. I'm like, oh, no, this is a movie. The, the books cool. of blood are a mixed bag. There's, really there, mixed. there's a few really good ones in there. And then there's a few that are just total duds. Yeah. Uh, Clive my, Barker. One of my favorites is the do you remember the Yattering and Jack? It, it's about a, a, this boring guy living in a boring British flat, and, and he lives with a demon who's oh, trying yeah. to drive him crazy. I do remember this one, yeah. This uh, one. But the demon can't be seen, so the demon's going a little bit crazy, and then you learn later in the story that he actually can see the demon, he's deliberately ignoring it to drive the demon crazy. <laughs> That's a fun premise for a story. Yeah. Um, if you haven't read a lot of Clive Barker, I've really only read mostly short stories and novellas. I haven't read a lot of the film, the books of his that are considered like the all-time classics, mm-hmm. but... No, one read, of the things that read is read the, the great and secret show at some point. That's you've recommended this to me many times. Uh, one of the things that I like about Clive Barker is also one of the things that I sometimes really don't like about Clive Barker uh-huh. is that he's he'll like start with a really solid premise and introduction. And then at some point it seems like he gets bored and just starts throwing shit in there, <laughs> like just throwing weird gore and monsters and whatever. Mm. And it's like, he just sort of loses patience and like goes completely insane. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it's so bizarre and out of left field and gross that it's just what you needed right now. And sometimes you're like, no, we didn't really need that, did we? Could have just told the story. But uh, in any case, Midnight Meat Train uh, is one of those where it seems like it starts off as almost like a giallo. At first, where someone kind of stumbles onto like what looks like a serial killer in New York City, and the serial killer is really violent, got a gimmick, and then about halfway through the movie, they're like, "Nope, it's gonna get fucking weird." Uh, Bradley Cooper stars not, as a, not, not just weird, but really dumb and pretty dumb. Uh, Bradley Cooper, uh, before he was a huge star, but back when you knew who he was, you know, he wouldn't, he wasn't a nobody when this movie was made. Mm. Uh, he plays a photographer and an he, inspiring photographer. He's, yeah. He's not. He hasn't struck it big yet because he hasn't found his muse quite yeah, yet. Yeah, and what he wants to do is he wants to show people the real New York City. Mm-hmm. He gets an opportunity to pitch his stuff to a gallery owner played by... Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields, who's actually really good in this. It's a small role, but she's really good. Uh, and uh, she, what she says, it takes one look at his stuff and he's just like, okay, here's your problem. You know what to, sh- you know what to shoot but you're not shooting it at the right time. Mm. Like you're just shooting two people. Stay and shoot more. Yeah. Stay and shoot more. Like actually like really like follow people around and wait for the drama to happen. Don't just imply drama, like actually get it, like get Mm. into the, the meat of the city find the story which is <laughs> meat of the city right but like and they're actually not bad advice so he actually so he goes on what he decides to do is he's gonna actually like really confront the scuzz of the city he starts photographing people getting mugged mm-hmm. and that's pretty dark and i thought that was actually kind of an interesting start to maybe the character's downfall yeah, and then we kind of no... forget all about that and he ends up following this one weird butcher on a subway played by Vinnie jones uh, I, I kind of understand a little bit of the anxiety that was going on when this was made. It was made in 2008. Mm. Uh, I guess it was made in 2007. So right at the end of the, the Bush years. 
And uh, this idea that there could be evil lurking around in New York City mm-hmm. was something that was a little palpable at the time, yeah. especially among New Yorkers. There's even a line of dialogue uh, that I, th- I think a cop says it. That There's says, a cop like, or a subway I'm, security I'm, I'm guard. I'm allowed to stop anybody if you're suspicious. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's b- Bush era stuff because Because right what Bradley Cooper is doing is he's stalking people mm-hmm. on the subway with mm-hmm. his camera and the guy's like, Hey, you're acting really suspicious and weird. And Bradley Cooper's like, no, I'm just taking photographs. Like, well, I got to dismantle your camera. He's like, that'll ruin all of my film. I'm like, this could be an explosive device. And because of the Patriot Act, I can do whatever the hell I want. And it's kind of hard to tell what the movie's attitude is about that. Yeah. It's not satirical. It's not subversive. It's not having any commentary. It's just kind of. And that's where we are in this time. Yeah, it, he he follows Vinnie Jones around. He gets to know his little a little bit of his inner life. At, by day, he is uh, a butcher. He works mm-hmm. in a butcher shop. By night, he rides the subway and he waits for the subway to be empty. <laughs> right, and uh, because <laughs> this is something we know about uh, New York subways is they're always empty. Uh, but he waits, waits until the midnight train. He takes the midnight train, waits until there's just one person left, and he takes out a big hammer and he smashes their skulls in. Yeah. And uh, then he butchers yeah, one, them. One time he smashes in Ted Raimi's skull because Ted mm. Raimi has a cameo. And his skull. CGI eyes pop out of his mm. head toward the camera and making you think that maybe they were trying to do it in 3D. Maybe. The Midnight Meat Train, we'll talk about the whole movie, but mm. here's what I'm going to say right now. There was a time when people thought that CGI gore effects were a good idea. Mm-hmm. I don't care what time that was, they were wrong about that. They've they've never looked good. They've never looked good. Some have looked better than others. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but there's something about viscera, blood, mm. guts, gore, that maybe they just don't have the money to spend to make it look amazing mm. because it always looks extra fake. It looks. It even looks fake in the movie Rogue. Like they do that thing where they have like CGI squibs instead of like actual oh, squibs. Like just a spray um... and, and just a fucking like pump full of caro syrup and red food coloring and a little bit of blue just to get the color right. Don't forget the blue. <laughs> uh, it looks so much better than that CGI red mist mm. that we get now, and it looks so fake every fucking time. Yeah. I appreciate yeah, the Midnight yeah. Me Train for trying to be a gory movie. A lot of horror movies, maybe not less so at the time. This is kind of the quote unquote torture porn era. But a lot of horror movies aren't like having fun with gore the way they well, did they, with like the Dead Alive and Evil Dead days. A, a lot of studios figured they could make a lot more money if they rated a lot of their PG their uh, horror films PG thirteen. Right. Uh, so gore is now kind of off the table, and that's why we're getting a lot of haunting movies. I think just because those fit within a lot of studio mandates, especially in that time. We're, yeah. we're starting to move away from it now. But yeah, but... At, at the time in the mid like early to mid two thousands, a lot there were a lot of super gory movies that tried to get away with uh, being extra shocking with their violence mm-hmm. and this is a, a brutally violent movie there's a lot of just really horrendous body rend- body rending going on in this movie and, and and it ranges and here's the deal almost all of the gore and the violence if that's what you're excited to see in a horror movie if that's the kind mm. of thing that, that gives you your catharsis um ranges from oh that's pretty cool yeah mm. actually it looks pretty good and then every time they use cgi you're just like no 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 you shouldn't have done that it's bad and I understand, like, a lot of the temptation is because, like, the whole thing is, like, when they hit Ted Raimi's head and his eyeballs fly out of his skull and it's all gross. The cool, the thing that I think they were excited about is that you could do that all in one shot now. Yeah. Like, you see Ted Raimi. You know that's Ted Raimi. That's not a dummy. And then 
you hit him on the head and his eyeballs pop out and it's all in one shot and it seems like it could be kind of cool but it just doesn't look right mm-hmm. and it ends up looking like something out of the mask <laughs> and it, it does like when his eyes pop out of his head it looks it looks that good which is to say it doesn't look good eviscerating um, like it works in the mask because he's actually supposed to be a cartoon, but this is not. This is supposed to be a human body. Yeah, so it just doesn't fly. And so, like a huge part of the draw of this movie clearly is that it's supposed to be really gory, and that's one of the parts where the movie fails. That sucks. Um, so for about half the movie, Bradley Cooper is stalking this guy. He thinks this guy might be a serial killer. He's starting to get obsessive. Leslie Bibb is like, "You have to stop photographing this guy." And she jumps on from, she jumps from, oh, you found an interesting subject for your photography to you're getting too obsessed with this guy so fast that I thought maybe well, the, she was in on it. The, the turning point is uh, she, she plays a waitress yeah. and uh, he sneaks in after hours, though the diner is closed. is like, hey, man, I finally found everything I wanted to photograph. She says, that's great. And they have sex on the counter in the diner. Yeah. Very unsanitary. Uh, Agreed. But evidently, the way in which they had sex was so like weird and violent for her that yeah. it was like this she knows is something's a, wrong. Yeah, something's changed in him, and uh, yeah. now she uh, accepts that he's going going a little off the deep end and following around this serial killer. And, and I'll grant you that, and that's in the text. But at mm-hmm. the same time, the way that she zeroes in on him being a conspiracy theorist is just. I seriously thought it was a big misdirect and we were going to find out that she was in on some sort of a conspiracy. And that's not it at all. Now, as it turns out, I'm going to go into spoilers here. Yeah. It turns out there is a conspiracy. Yeah. That uh, the the cops are in on. At least one is. And we know that the conductors of the subways themselves are in on it as well. In fact, Uh. we get to see the conductor... Uh, kill one of the serial killer's victims himself. It's actually kind of a fun little misdirect because, like, Vinnie Jones is actually fighting a guy. Like, a guy is actually putting up a fight and maybe mm-hmm. he'll be able to stop the serial killer. And you see the conductor, like, leave the front of the train, walk backwards, and you think, oh, no, the conductor's gonna die. Or, oh, maybe the conductor's gonna help. And then the mm-hmm. conductor lifts a pistol and kills Vinnie Jones's victim. And he berates Vinnie Jones for not doing his job right. And you're like, oh, okay. So it's going to get weird. And it does. And it does, because as it turns out, the cops and the subway directors and... Probably a a lot of other people. A bunch of butchers and a bunch of people lurking about... uh, New York City have some sort of weird ancient pact with chuds. The midnight meat train takes a stop at a disused station where a bunch of chuds are living, and not just any they're, they're, chuds. Lovecraftian chuds. They're, yeah, just a, they're they're just chuds. They're, well, there's no, nothing they're special. They're supposed to be ancient. They're supposed to be ancient. Okay, That's the whole very old chuds. <laughs> what are chuds? <laughs> not everyone knows what a chud is. Everybody knows what a chud is. Chud is Can, the name of a cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. There's a 1983 horror yeah, movie, early uh, '80s, very scuzzy, low yeah. budget movie. It's one of the it's one of the first Daniel Stern movies. Mm. Uh, he's actually quite good in it. Uh, called, it's, it's called simply Chud. Yeah, I never saw the sequel Chud to Bud the Chud. Uh, I have no idea if that's and, any good. And, and it's about a, a bunch of creatures who are eat, eating homeless people underground, and they find this conspiracy. They're, they're cannibalistic, a bunch, a bunch humanoid of underground, cannibalistic girls. goblin yeah. monsters living in, underground in, in the city. It's one of those horror movies that is just enough like credibility or like awareness. That, but it's actually not that good. No, it's not great. It's it's watchable, but it's not very good. I'm like, how has no one remade Chud? Chud actually warrants a remake. There's nothing wrong with the premise of there are cannibals, cannibal monsters in the sewers. Like that's that that could be fun. You could do a lot with that. Mm. 
the movie is not that great. Remake Chud, for God's sake. Well, they kind of did with the Midnight Meat Train. A little bit. As, as it turns out, these, these Chuds have a very particular palate. They like to eat people, okay, yeah. but you can't just sort of toss them a person. You have they to have, prepare them like a butcher. They have, they have to be dead. Well, not not prepare them like a butcher because they're not being like sliced into cuts of meat. No, but they're hung they're on just, meat hooks. They're hung and on they're meat hooks. They're, they're killed. The... They're killed kosher style. Okay. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and and you remove their teeth and their eyes, uh, but not their bones. I don't know why the teeth would be a problem. Mm. But uh, yeah, they uh, Vinnie Jones does all of this on the train. This is something much would take hours and hours and hours. This uh-huh. is like a midnight to six a.m. meat train. It's gross. So we get to see them, like, you know, see him yanking out teeth and, pulling, and the, gouging and, out eyeballs and, and the stuff. whole thing is that when Vinnie Jones is on the train, mm. the train actually diverges onto, like, a separate old line that's been there since the beginning of the subway. And it leads into this underground lair where these monsters live. And what we find out towards the end of the movie, and we'll talk a bit more about Bradley Cooper's journey in a second, but here's the mythology, uh, is that these monsters and these human-eating monsters have been at the core of like New York City this entire time, and they're part of the reason why the city has been flourishing. And in order to keep New York City running, you have to feed human meat to the monsters, which is... Doesn't really read. No, and apparently, apparently that's more in the book. I was doing a little bit of research on it. Like, in the mm-hmm. story, they go into a little bit more detail about how it's kind of a metaphor. Because the whole thing about him wanting to see the real New York City, the real New York City is just unbelievably monstrous Mm. it's very it's a very lovecraftian concept it's very uh pickman's model and um yeah i kind of like that as a premise i kind of like that it starts off as a serial killer story and turns into a broader supernatural tale that's kind of neat um problem is it kind of sucks it kind of sucks i i don't like ryuhei kitamura as a director i think uh, i don't like the way he photographs things okay he's way too preoccupied with style and the look and this kind of steely uh post saw type of photography Mm. that makes everything seem really kind of unreal and and a lot less interesting to look at it, weirdly if he had taken style away and made mm. it a lot more gritty and real and taken a lot of aesthetics out of it it would have been more interesting to watch well i think that's the thing i i, I actually i'm hit or miss on Rihei kitamura and i mm. think when his and i haven't seen everything he's ever done but when i've seen something he's done that doesn't fly it's usually because you're right he is very stylish mm. sometimes to a fault if the material supports his style it will be a fun movie if the material doesn't, he's going to do that style anyway. Yeah. And the movie will often suffer for it. I was thinking when I was watching this, like, I would love to see Abel Ferrara's version of this. Yeah. Like some really just cheap, low budget, actually filmed it on the subway without permits. Yeah, like, or someone like Henenlotter. Yeah. For God's sake, Henenlotter would have knocked this out and of the park. Henenlotter's all over this movie, really. Yeah. At least in its sort of conception. I'd be surprised mm. if Clive Barker wasn't a fan of Basket Case. But, uh, yeah, it's just... You get the feeling that because the style is oppressive, and I'm not going to lie, there's some cool shots in this movie. Mm. There's some cool set design in this movie. It's not a bad looking movie overall, except for the CG. They 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 really doubled down on it, and it didn't pay off. Mm. Uh, but I think the issue with the movie is that it's got to feel kind of real before the monster's hit. Yeah. For the monster's hitting to make any real impact. It's got to feel like here is a real photographer in a real New York City trying to make his mark, trying to actually capture something real and beautiful and getting sucked into the ugliest side of New York City, the crime, the sin, 
the and, corruption, and the cannibalism, and the cannibalism, yeah. and even just the meat trade. I mean, like, just you look at like san. You could like there were whole tomes have been written about sanitation stories mm. in New York City. So just like the pre- preparation of food, food looks really gross in this movie. So like you really could have done something with that. Yeah, like there's there's a plot point where he's a vegetarian, mm-hmm. and in fact he goes into this like little greasy spoon where his girlfriend works and hence. The cook some tofu that he brought in. Like, please cook, like, my, like, tofu. Can, can cook my tofu. I'm not going to eat anything on your menu. Yeah. It's like because he's like an old meat and potatoes kind of guy. I, no, I'm going to make you a steak. No, I want tofu. Um, and then later on, he eats a bite of meat to show. Oh no, he's turned to the dark side. Like, photograph the food more. Make that a yeah. big part of it. That, yeah. That, that being a carnivore is kind of a curse in a large city. Yeah, it feels like at least it feels like the style is all about sort of looking cool and not about actually amplifying what the protagonist is going for. What the protagonist is going through is actually a pretty decent foundation for a horror movie. They're an Mm. artist who is becoming obsessed with the darkest part of humanity and it is changing them. Yeah, that's a good setup for any horror movie, whether it goes in a supernatural direction or not. And so and Bradley Cooper's a good actor. He could sell that if he wanted to. But instead, there's this whole thing where he's going to suit up in a metal fucking apron and like sheath a whole bunch of butcher knives so that he can fight Vinnie Jones on the train. And I'll say this. The fight between Bradley Cooper and Vinnie Jones on a subway train where a whole bunch of corpses are hanging up like in the mm. meat locker in Rocky and as they're attacking each other with knives they keep slicing at the bodies and some of them are still alive and, mm. and blood is spraying everywhere I'll yeah. say this that's a set piece that it's, is one hell of a set piece it, it's gross but it's an action set piece I, like it doesn't really amplify horror it agreed just sort of grosses you out. agreed but it is for that chunk very entertaining like it is weird I'll, I'll and gross yeah. and, it, and it's got some imagination to it but what you have here is the foundation for something genuinely frightening and genuinely thoughtful about uh, the artist's experience, about sort of the underbelly of urban life. And they never really go for that. And it ends up just feeling just kind of gross. Like a, gr- and, a gross style exercise. Yeah. Cashing out on a few things. I... I I feel so bad for Clive Barker because I was a huge fan of Clive Barker when I was in high school. Yeah. I love Hellraiser to no end. Mm-hmm. I'm even a big fan of Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed, the other films he directed. I think Nightbreed, uh, is, Nightbreed is my personal favorite. Mm-hmm. I think even the studio cut is really fucking good. It was my X-Men movie. I still think in some ways it's the best X-Men movie Like that actually <laughs> yeah. deals with the issues that the X-Men is trying to talk about. Um, but it's uh, but they're yeah, monsters instead of mutants. It's yeah, the, the really sec- fun. The second Hellraiser movie is one of the best slasher films of the eighties, bar mm-hmm. none. Barker uh, didn't direct that one, but it still feels like he's all over it, yeah, and so uh, it, guy, it feels right. Director named Tony Randall made that one. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser three through ten, you can skip. Four is uh, okay. Four is okay. I'll go to buy it for four. I would say the only three Hellraisers you need to see are one, two, and four. That's all. Yeah, yeah you don't. You can skip all the other ones so far. They're n- they range from really fucking bad to just not good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I feel like he's he, apart from the like those few that he's directed himself. Nobody's really kind of understood him well enough to make a good film based on a Clive Barker book. Yeah, you think about how many directors, and not everyone has done it, and some mm. people have done it in very different ways. But a variety of directors have cracked Stephen King. Yeah. Like Rob Reiner cracks Stephen King, Frank Darabont cracks mm. Stephen King, Cronenberg and Carpenter cracks Stephen King. Also, some people totally whiffed it, but mm. people have done it. 
couple of people have cracked Lovecraft. Stuart Gordon cracked Lovecraft. And Lovecraft is hard to crack. Yeah. Because Lovecraft is, A, really fucking racist, and B, wrote stories that absolutely defied being filmed. Mm. But and that's the it, whole point, is that yeah. things look so strange it makes people go insane, and you yeah. can't really invent that visually. Yeah, it's like, it's like the whole point is that it's kind of literally impossible, and yet Stuart Gordon found a way to make at least some of his stories work in cinema without being... You know, feeling like a cop out or really delving into the ugliest parts of his narratives. And yet they work. Love Barker understood Barker. Like Barker was able to direct his own Mm. stuff, and those feel like Clive Barker, but it feels like when almost anyone else tries, never never quite flies. That's a real shame. Like Rawhead Rex sucks. Sucks. Um, I know it has its fans. I don't get it. That's I I, I remember being scared of that movie when I saw it when I was like five. Mm. Which was, by the way, way too young to see Rawhead Rex. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) But uh, regardless, I just I I saw it like when it finally came out on like Blu-ray or whatever or DVD like Mm. ten years ago and. It's not great. Silly looking monster. It's, it's not a great monster. It's supposed to be the symbol for like a, like a, a, an unchecked libido, and that yeah. that's not in the movie at all. Yeah. Uh, Clive Barker wrote stories that were incredibly bloody. He believed in uh, kind of this Walt Whitman esque religion where the human body was the deity itself. Mm-hmm. So he believed there was a lot of power in in your muscles, your sinews, and mm-hmm. your fluids. So blood is a big part of it, as well as like spit and semen. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are like big elements the of Clive Barker stories, and yeah. that's why a lot of his stories are really super gory. I'm actually mm-hmm. surprised Cronenberg never did anything with Clive Barker. Oh, gosh, that would actually really be should. that would have been yeah. a good marriage of material, right? Yeah. yeah, just they and Barker would have like had one take on it. Cronenberg is a little bit more clinical about it, mm-hmm. and they probably would have met in the middle pretty well. Yeah, that would have been a great pairing. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Well, I mean, and they even worked together, too, because Cronenberg was in Nightbreed. Oh, shit, Uh, you're right. So, yeah, (laughs) just Cronenberg directing one of Clive Barker's stories would have made more sense. (laughs) I got to, I I interviewed Clive Barker once over the phone, but I actually got to meet him once in person at at a QA and a after Mm. Spider, which is a really underrated Cronenberg film. And um, I think it was Miranda Richardson who was in that movie. And yeah, she was yeah. talking about someone asked a question about acting or whatever. And mm. she was like, oh, you know, directors, they don't act. So they don't come at it from the same angle. And sometimes it leads to interesting mm. conversations. And when I was able to get like one short moment with David Cronenberg. And I was like, I remember talking about the acting thing. And I'm like, you were amazing in Nightbreed. And David Cronenberg was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I really tried in that movie. <laughs> He appreciated that. It was nice. Oh, that's, um, nice. that's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Cronenberg is fucking amazing in Nightbreed. Um, so, yeah, this is not... Okay, I understand. If people like this movie, cool. That's mm. totally good. It's not like... It's hardly the worst horror movie I've ever seen. And I think maybe if you weren't, like, super familiar with Clive Barker's stuff, this might have really grabbed you because there's a lot of weird shit in it. Mm. Um, and there's definitely germs of something good in here. Like, if someone wanted to remake this you could totally make a better movie than this and it could actually be a good movie. And I would like to see that movie. Uh, but yeah, I, this is for me, this is not a cult classic in the wings. I'm glad I finally saw it because I'm glad I finally see everything. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is not great. I'm just waiting patiently for like the, the, the great Clive Barker renaissance to happen. What's, what's the, and I know he's written some non horror novels, but people know him as a horror author. They're going to want to handle him as a horror because we had a Stephen King renaissance. That's, What's the short story or novel that you think 
the, is the, like, the that'll ignite the Clive Barker Renaissance. Like you'd actually um, like really crack it. Well, they, they set up two that were supposed to do it. One was the Thief of Always. Right. Uh, he did the Thief of Always, which is a story about a, a young boy who's just bored at home when a guy comes flying by his window. He's mm-hmm. like, what is going on? Come to the Hill House, and he makes his way through this big fog bank that nobody can ever see through. And it turns out there's a house in the middle of this fog bank, and the house is alive. And every night it's Halloween, and every morning it's Christmas, and you'll get whatever you like. It's a good fairy tale setup, mm-hmm. and of course it's sucking the souls of children. Yeah, uh, and they were going to do it in stop motion, and Henry Selick was attached to do it, and then they did and Coraline then, and. And Neil Gaiman sniped that idea. He wrote it after The Thief of Always, did a really, really similar story and got all of the film stuff. So we kind of got it with Coraline. I, I, that, I don't know if we're actually in a position to accuse Neil Gaiman of anything. No, but, but it's, it's, it's the timing is really suspicious. Yeah. Uh, and Regardless, the existence of Coraline kind of prevented us from seeing Thief of seeing Always. The Thief of, yeah, because we can't yeah. get it because people accuse it of knocking off Coraline. Exactly. Uh, then uh, he actually made this great multi-million dollar deal with Disney. Uh, this was before the whole Star Wars and Marvel buy-ups. They were going to do this big, high-budget fantasy epic based on some young adult novels that he was working on called the Aberat Quartet. Right. And uh, but here's, but here's he, my... he painted all these things and they, they put all these, you know, started getting this huge project into production and then the studio changed hands and everything was dropped. But here's, here's, my, here's my thing, though, and here's why those were actually two projects I was aware of that I was actually trying to remove from the conversation because mm. those are not the typical Clive Barker stories. Mm. Those are actually like I've read a I've read a comic book adaptation of Thief of Always. Don't judge me. I wasn't trying to avoid the book. It just was mm. available to me. Um, and I'm I'm familiar with bits of Abarat, and they're not Hellraiser. They're no, not Nightbreed. Okay. They're not horror stories so from what's, the what's of the, the horror centric mm. work. The the not horror for kids but horror horror yeah like what's the horror story that you think could be really even if it's a remake like what could mm. really like bring Clive Barker into the present day um let's see if, if there's like just one film because his films his books tend to be hugely ambitious and they mm. span dimensions and they're a thousand pages long yeah you could also use so, a short story that'd be fine too okay um I'd love to see a Yattering and Jack movie I think okay. that'd be fun kind of expand that one a little bit right. uh they they did a, a TV miniseries that I actually haven't seen of the body politic. It's the one with the severed hands cut themselves off and go on the rampage. Matt oh. Frewer is in it. Um, it's part, part of a miniseries called Quicksilver Highway. It was a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Half of it was a Clive Barker story. I would love to see a, a film, I guess it would have to be a film series of The Great and Secret Show. Okay. Which is about... Uh, a fellow who works in a dead letter office and he starts opening the like out in the middle of nowhere and all of the letters that don't have a, a place to go go there and it's just this weird sort of mythic fairy tale setup and he starts reading all the letters and he in reading the letters realizes that everything is interconnected he has this weird sort of spiritual enlightenment he ends up hooking up with a mad scientist they create this magical serum they turn themselves into deities they fight for a long time tire each other out and turn into a lake so yeah so it's all very like like Genesis kind of stuff, but it takes place in modern day. A group of teenage girls go swimming in the lake and they're impregnated with either good or evil. And it's about sort of the, the children a generation later sort of growing up with good and evil in them and this weird ever going. It's, it's really quite good. All right, cool. <laughs> um, that I think could make a fine film. Right. I think there's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of good horror imagery. There's a lot of, t- there's a good wide mythology about, uh, traveling through dimensions and the the dimension that sort of connects everything and it's all very abstract and really kind of cool sounding. All right, it's got a big fantasy epic that that could 
break Clive Barker out if someone were willing to give the time and energy to it. Well, I hope that'll happen someday um, because Midnight Me Train wasn't it, no, and I don't really think it will wasn't. be. And I don't think it's going to be like. There, it might have fans, but I don't think this is ever going to be eventually considered an all-time classic. Yeah. So I'm glad I finally saw it, but this is kind of a dud. Uh, mm. Next time. Next time. <laughs> On Critically Acclaimed. In addition to reviewing the new releases, uh, the, the I'm Thinking of Ending Things, mm. a new... Um, Charlie Kaufman film. Yeah, new Charlie Kaufman film. New Charlie Kaufman joint, if you will. In addition to reviewing Mulan, hey, we finally That's- get to see Mulan. I know a lot of people who saw Mulan in March and are still embargoed. <laughs> Gosh, uh, I missed Don't my watch it again to catch up. I missed my screening because I had a mild cold and I was like just before the COVID thing. And mm. I was like, I don't want to be the person who goes to a screening and gets everyone sick with this deadly <laughs> pandemic. I ended up being fine, mm. but it was just I was fine in like 12 hours. So it wasn't the same thing. But uh, regardless I missed Mulan, so I finally get to see Mulan. And also, uh, the horror movie uh, The Owners, mm-hmm. we are going to be reviewing via a poll on the patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network mm-hmm. on the critically acclaimed streaming club. Three Cases of Murder. This is another horror movie. It's actually a British horror anthology film uh, about uh, supernatural murder stuff. And uh, Orson Welles not only stars in it, but did some uncredited directing in a segment about a politician who gets revenge on a rival politician by entering his dreams. <laughs> Very Freddy Krueger. This movie was largely unavailable for a really long time. Like, really long time. And uh, for a while, it was only available on Laserdisc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, now it's currently available uh, on the Criterion channel. Uh, we will be uh, reviewing it on the Criterion channel. You're welcome to watch it with us. In addition to all the other new releases of the week. And I'm very excited to see this one. Uh, there's actually uh, quite a few Orson Welles acting performances I never got around to. And this is one of them. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Nice. Okay. Cool. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you can email us. Email. Starting to run out of steam. I do this at the end of every podcast. I'm going to plow through. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode. Mm. Uh, you want to talk about something that is not discussed on any episode. You just want to talk. Mm. Just want to, just want to you know, sit down and rap. You know, turn a chair backwards. Mm. You know, sit, sit down and going, hey, kids, let's rap. <laughs> uh, you're welcome to do that. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email aloud on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, you're also welcome to join us at the patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where in addition to having polls all the time to help decide future content on this podcast and many of our other podcasts, we have a ton of exclusive content. We have a podcast dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever in production order. We're going to start a new podcast in the next week or so in which we're going to review all every single episode of the 1960s live action Adam West Batman series, which we don't feel gets enough love. Definitely not. Uh, we have a podcast dedicated to stuff that should be on Disney Plus, but is not on Disney Plus. Mm. Uh, we have a podcast dedicated to every film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, later in the month, we're going to do a commentary track for one of the Star Wars movies. Which one? Only your patrons at the top tier get mm. to decide. We're looking forward to finding out which one it is, because we mean any of them. Like, we'll do Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope if you want. We'll also do Ewoks Battle for Endor. We'll do the cartoon that nobody liked. We'll do the. We, we've already done a commentary track for the holiday special. We'll do another one. <laughs> Fuck it. Whatever you vote for, we'll do. Whether we like it or not. There are no rules anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Knock down all the barriers. 
Uh, so, uh, yeah. So that's coming up as well. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what?